Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What are you watching these days? and offered before me. She helped me find my way out. She's dead. She's alive. She is me. We are handmaids. I was a great wife. I was fun. I can't believe I'm losing him to Penny Pan. That's her name. Penny Pan. I'm sorry, but look at me. Who wouldn't want to come home to this every night? Have you gotten sucked in by the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? I have. Waited excitedly for season three of Stranger Things and Handmaid's Tale. Guilty of binge-watching Ozark? Me too. They're all shows originating on streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon. Do you even bother to watch cable or any of the big three networks? Today where we live, we explore the changing media landscape. With all the choices out there, how do you decide what to watch? NPR's TV critic Eric Deggins will join us later with more on how streaming services are trying to set their shows apart. We'll also consider how access to streaming TV will change with the rollback of net neutrality. And if internet providers don't have to play by any rules set by the FCC, What does that mean for consumers who don't have the cash to pay for premium content? First, how much do you budget per month to subscribe to all of these services? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest to the show. Uh, She's uh, joining us from NPR in New York City, Ashley Rodriguez. She covers media and marketing for Quartz. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So let's start with the news. Uh, we've all heard that Netflix is raising their price. Uh, uh, tell us, is this already in effect? And uh, what has been the impact or uh, response uh, to the price hike? Yes, for new subscribers, this is already in effect. So um, as of last week, if you went to go sign up for Netflix, you would see these new higher rates for each one of the, the packages that Netflix offers here in the U.S., For existing subscribers, they're going to be rolling out over the next couple of months, so you'll get an email in your inbox, um, and you'll be notified through the app letting you know that this price hike is going to be coming to your account. So a couple of bucks? Yep. um, It's about $2 for the main account, right, which is the standard one, so it's jumping from $11.99 up to $13.99. Meanwhile, Hulu's dropping uh, their their subscription price. Can you talk about why uh, they're doing that? Yeah, and this isn't the first time this has happened, right, where Netflix has raised prices in the U.S. and uh, Hulu has dropped them around the same time. Hulu has tried this uh, $6 per month promotion a couple of times before, and it's done pretty well for the company. So they're now they're lowering their prices for their, their cheapest package down by a couple bucks each month. Um, this is the package that come, 
comes with ads, right? They, they offer two services, one without ads, um, one with ads, and then they also have a more expensive live TV service. Um, so this kind of lowers the bar for the cheapest offering that you can get into Hulu. And for folks who may be a little bit frustrated with the Netflix price hike, this um, might be a good opportunity for them to try something new out. Well, when we think about uh, those of us who are paying the lower uh, price for Hulu and we're seeing the ads, does that mean we might be seeing more ads in the future, Ashley? You know, that's a great question. Um, If you think about Hulu's position right now, they're still a fairly young service. They have about 25 million subscribers uh, here in the U.S. And so for them, it's really about growth, growth, growth um, by lowering the prices for this this offering. And having advertising allows them to lower prices because they have another source of revenue that Netflix doesn't have for their content. So the question then becomes, once you've got a whole lot of people on this package, do you then start adding more ads in? Do you find a way to charge more for that? advertising so you can make even more money off those those consumers. Uh, we played a few uh, bits from popular shows uh, right now, but when we think about Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and some of the other new players we're going to be hearing uh, entering the market just in a couple of minutes, you know, what is, I guess, the, the magic number, Ashley, of, of how many subscriptions people are willing to pay for? Well, it's interesting. There, there have been a lot of studies that have been around um, that have been done on this. Right now, uh, people have access to roughly four uh, video services, right, and that includes live TV. Um, but they're willing to go up to about six services for streaming video. Um, research has from Majid, which is an entertainment research company, though, has found that they're not really to pay a whole lot more for that. The threshold um, is about $38 per month on average across your subscription video services like Netflix, Hulu, um, Disney Plus, when that new service comes out later this year. So we're willing to accept new offerings, but we're really not willing to dig that much further into our wallets for them. Uh, Joining us again from NPR Studios in New York is Ashley Rodriguez, who covers media and marketing for courts. As we talk about uh, the rise of streaming services, is this a, do you often uh, watch something uh, based on Netflix uh, programs or Hulu or Amazon? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. When we think about Netflix uh, increasing their price, are they hoping to maybe edge out some of those other competing services in terms of that magic $38 a month uh, to subscribe uh, to multiple services, Ashley? Well, you can't ignore the timing. I mean, there are a lot of business reasons for Netflix to have raised their prices in the U.S. now, but growth is also slowing in this market. So it's an opportunity for them to um, also get more money from their customers, which they can then use to invest in content. If you look at the way that Netflix has been talking about themselves on their earnings calls for the last couple of quarters, it's really showing that, yeah, there may be a lot of streaming services out there and even more on the way, but they are the one that you have to have, right? They are the one um, when they say 80 million people or 80 million accounts have watched Bird Box. They are the one that you're going to have to have because all of your friends and family are going to be talking about that movie, that TV show at work and at school. Again, this is where we live, and we're talking with Ashley Rodriguez. So you mentioned some of of the new players, uh, Disney being one of them. Uh, what are some other companies that are going to be coming on uh, f- to try to uh, you know take away uh, possibly uh, customers for to Netflix and the Hulu's? 
Warner Media has a new offering that's expected to come out later this year, and this is going to be something that's going to bundle in a lot of the different Warner Media brands that are out there. So we've already got an HBO service. We could see them bringing in some of their other brands, maybe the the DC characters, um, some some of the the Warner movies that they have out there. So they're going to put out a couple of packages later in the year. This is um, time for around the fall or, or late 2019, and then next year we're going to get an offering from NBC Universal. Um, And that's going to be ad-supported, but it's also going to be pretty robust. There is going to be a a version for people who have Comcast already, so Comcast owns NBC Universal, and there's going to be a version for subscribers who don't have that service. Um, So these are two huge media companies, three if we're thinking about Disney, that are all coming into this space uh, within the next year, really. And with uh, Disney Plus uh, coming on board, what does that mean for if my child wants to see a Disney movie that's been carried, say, by Amazon or Netflix? You know, I think that's going to be a must-have. Netflix's uh, deal with Disney for for new movies that were sent to to stream on Netflix is going to be ending at the uh, about September of this year, I believe. And so next year or later this year, we're going to see a lot of these movies start to move over to the Disney Plus service when that launches. Now, everything will not be on there at launch. So a lot of the older movies are still kind of tied up in many of these uh, previous licensing deals. But over the years, you can expect to see as those deals end, you can expect to see you know more of the Disney movie archive moving on to this Disney Plus service. This is where we live today. We t- we're talking about the streaming services that seem to have overtaken traditional TV. Do you subscribe to Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, maybe looking forward to Disney Plus uh, and other streaming services? Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, joining uh, our conversation now via Skype is Amanda Lotz, who's professor of digital media and communication at Queensland University of Technology in Australia, also author of We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet internet revolutionized it all. Amanda, welcome to our show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. So we've been hearing about uh, some of the companies, uh, again, uh, coming forth, uh, hoping to break in uh, to the market that Netflix has dominated uh, for so long. Uh, Can you talk about, um, you know, reasons for expansion? Um, Do they see Netflix's model as um, not uh, able to sustain itself in the long term? No, I think it's more about trying to enhance their businesses. And so what Ashley's just laid out very well is really all of these different media companies that own an incredible amount of content looking for a way to go direct to consumer instead of having some sort of middleman in between the consumer and their business as content creators. Oh, in terms of uh, more niche providers, uh, are, do they still have uh, you know, some um, uh, attraction to consumers who are seeing these bigger companies uh, uh, coming in? Well, I think there's a, a lot of uh, reasons that it's attractive. I think a key one has to do with data and the ability to know a lot more about what people are watching, how they are watching it in terms of the information that that feeds back into the system of production. Amanda, you mentioned that the companies are looking to expand their business model. Did they take too long to get to this point? 
Oh, I, I think that's, that's something that only time will tell. I think many of these companies actually were in the market almost a decade ago experimenting, and the the consumer really just wasn't there yet. Uh, but Netflix is, is really deserves the credit for acculturating viewers to a new way of, of watching. And really the only way that the company was able to do that was with the kind of programming that uh, Netflix was able to license from the existing studios that people were familiar with and that people wanted to watch. So you know, I think it's, it's a very natural progression for the industry. So what are the challenges in front of them? I think an enormous challenge is just the ability to figure out what amount of programming um, audiences want and and to make all of the numbers work. I think the other piece that's really challenging is the backside. Uh, Netflix consumers, I'm one of them, I mean, we really take for granted how well all of it works. And that ability, that ability to have a good search mechanism of good recommendations, that the video that you choose plays more often than not and plays to completion, all of those are really big challenges that because Netflix has taken such care in building its distribution infrastructure um, that gets the videos to our homes, uh, you know, we've taken that for granted, but I think that's actually much more difficult than many people recognize. Uh, Ashley Rodriguez is also with us. She covers media and marketing for Quartz. When we think of Netflix, are they still considered the streaming king worldwide? You know, I think they are. They haven't. They've managed to hold on to that title, um, even with a lot of the new players that have come out, um, and platforms like Amazon Prime Video, which are really stepping up the content that they're putting out there and getting awards. Um, you know, we've seen Oscar nominations. They're starting to get recognition. So I think they're sort of the streaming king in television right now. And they're really just beginning to be the streaming king in movies. And I think they have a lot of runway in that department. I had asked Amanda uh, about if Netflix uh, is sustainable. Um, from your reporting, you, you talk often about how uh, Netflix is running on negative cash flow. They're putting in so much uh, to uh, find original content. Um, but also, I'm just curious how they're going to be able to s- sustain themselves with this new competition coming online. At the end of the day, it's an unproven business model, right? The idea of being able to offer premium content globally at such a low price point um, is really is really new. And even though Netflix has been doing this with streaming video for, um, you know, geez, going uh, over 10 years now, they, they launched their streaming platform. Um, it's still uncertain as they develop the business, you know, can they really f- complete this transformation from a tech company into a media company? And how will the economics work out in the long run? So I think that remains to be seen. Um, Amanda Lotz, who's joining us from Australia, professor of digital media and communication at Queensland University of Technology in Australia. Uh, what do you think about Netflix's, uh, you know, ability to uh, remain sustainable? Uh, I, I agree with Ashley in terms of the the uncertainty about this model. Uh, but I think the other piece that's really important is the international strategy and the way in which that really presents an opportunity that hasn't been tried before. And the fact that Netflix is really approaching it differently than media industries have in the past. Um, In the past, U.S., uh, studios and producers have made content primarily for the U.S. market and then just sort of figured that they could push it out to different markets around the world. And, and Netflix has been much more savvy and has really 
started putting a lot of those, uh, the programming dollars that often we talk about, the, you know, so much money, well, but they're also putting that money not into just developing for the U.S. market, but creating original programming for those consumers ar- around the globe. And and that's really also another part of, of this grand video business experiment that's that's just uncharted territory. Can we talk a little bit about Amazon? Because uh, obviously uh, Amazon Prime and, and streaming video uh, is uh, important uh, uh, for them, but they also tie it with uh, the fact that they have Prime gives them the consumer so many other um, benefits like uh, free two-day shipping, you know, uh, uh, discounts at Whole Foods. And so um, is that something that uh, consumers are more drawn to, Amanda? I think we have to understand Amazon's business as, as something a little bit different. And Netflix really is a pure play. It's about creating video and people who want to watch that video. In the case of of Amazon, the primary business there is still retail and driving more consumers into becoming prime members um, because they know that when they have more prime members, then um, those members spend more with Amazon as a retail business. And and so I think, you know, here, too, we need to wait and see um, whether over the long term video is really something that drives people to maintain a prime membership or attracts them to Amazon in the first place. Um, does it add stickiness uh, to an Amazon subscription and keeps people you know, paying that monthly or yearly fee for that that prime status? And so I, I do think that. Amazon is measuring success differently than Netflix, and and therefore we'd expect to see different strategies, and we'd expect to see different programming as a result. Uh, Ashley Rodriguez, uh, who covers media and marketing for Quartz, uh, we've been talking about Netflix uh, investing in, in original content, but um, you know how much of a value is it for them to spend the money on you know sitcoms that have been really popular in the past, like The Office or Friends. You know, I think for those many people, they're staples, right? Everyone kind of has this resting program that they kind of go to in between watching newer stuff, and they just come to rely on that. But for Netflix, I also think it it gets to be a little bit of a gateway into other Netflix content. So if you think about a show like The Office, which will probably be hugely expensive for them to renew, especially when NBC, which owns the show, has its own streaming service, and they may want to put it on that platform. For Netflix, the expense may still be worth it because they have a lot of other programming that ties into the office, right? Uh, they just greenlit something called the Space Force, which is created by one of the co-creators of the U.S. version of the office, Greg Daniels, um, and it's starring Steve Carell. They have lots of programming on there that has these stars from the show. So I think there will be certain types of programming like sitcoms such as The Office and Friends that will continue to be worth the investment, whereas some of the other aggregated stuff um, may come on and may leave the platform may not be worth um, the big ticket that some of these media companies are going to be charging for it. And Ashley, before we let you go, what will you be watching for in the next few months? Uh, you know, I'll definitely be interested to see how um, some of the big movies that Netflix is going to be putting out this year do for the company. Um, they've gotten a lot of attention from critics lately, but this movie business is still really in the early days for them. So I'll be really curious to see how that develops. Ashley Rodriguez, again, covers media and marketing for Courts. We're going to tweet out uh, links to some of her stories at Where We Live. Ashley, thanks for joining us today from NPR Studios in New York City. 
Thanks so much for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Amanda Lotz will stay with us. She's professor of digital media and communication at Queensland University of Technology in Australia. Also author of We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. We're going to talk and learn more about how uh, this has really impacted traditional TV. We're talking the big three networks and cable. And we're going to talk about how the end of net neutrality impacts the choices we have and the price we may be paying. You can join our conversation too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Is your favorite show or shows carried on Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon? Are you one of the subscribers who cut the cord on cable a long time ago? The cost for cable alone makes the case to switch. It did for my household when we said goodbye to cable in late 2010 and opted to try out this funny-sounding Roku. To be completely honest, lifestyle changes also played a part. I knew I'd be stuck in an armchair with a newborn in frigid February temps and didn't want to be stuck watching soap operas or those awful game shows. Today we've been talking about the rise of internet streaming services. Now we wanted to know more about the impact on old-fashioned TV. Uh, Amanda Lotz joins us via Skype. She's professor of digital media and communication at Queensland University of Technology in Australia, author the book, We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. So Amanda, how much of the rise in streaming services has impacted uh, in terms of subscriptions or people having pain for cable? I think it's really diversified the marketplace, and it's definitely given consumers far more options than they've had in the past. But at this point, we still see traditional linear television as the dominant way of receiving television in the US, although the um, percentage of television that is viewed that way has been steadily decreasing by among all audiences, except those over the age of 65. Can we go back a little bit when we think about um, television and the big three networks and how cable uh, seemed to change it all with the amount of content that people could choose from? So when we think about how streaming services is now growing, um, what are some of the things that streaming uh, has learned um, from legacy TV, so to speak? I think it's easy to forget that just 20 years ago, cable was a place that you went really just for old reruns or television shows that had previously aired on broadcast networks or old movies. Uh, so we're really not that far into a history of cable making their own programming. And it is from that fairly recent history that the streaming services took a lot of lessons. And one of the biggest ones there was the need to not try to create programming that was just like broadcast networks, but to bring something different to the table. And so the strategy, I think, through the first decade of, of the 21st century for a lot of cable channels was about creating distinctive programming that would, would stand out and really differentiate itself from what you might find on a broadcast network. And when the streaming services launched, um, let's say Netflix really getting into the market first with its originals, and that's very much what the service did uh, with very 
buzzy announcements. Uh, the, the, the announcement about House of Cards went out a good two years before those episodes ever made it onto anyone's screen. And, and that was a huge announcement at the time in terms of the talent connected and the budgets that Netflix was willing to spend. Uh, you mentioned that uh, there's still uh, millions uh, who uh, still are uh, subscribing to cable and look forward to watching the network. So what is the content that they're looking for? Is it the local news and the sports? I don't think so necessarily. I, I think that's definitely an important part of it. I think uh, another part of it is that there there still is a considerable amount of value in that cable package especially for households with multiple members um, if you're if you're a household of one or maybe two and and your uh, interests and and tastes align then indeed those streaming services can be pretty targeted but in order to have you know, kids and the content targeting them and, and maybe, you know, two partners that have somewhat different tastes, the cable bundle still packs quite a bit of value. And the other part that comes with it is the way that uh, cable service has really made the experience better by creating opportunities outside of that linear viewing. So that technologies such as video on demand, or um, if you have a, a DVR, you can really replicate a lot of that experience of being able to watch what you want, when you want, that comes with the streaming service. And now we're used to cable companies uh, you know, paying for cable, but also for our internet service. Absolutely. I think that's a very important part of, of the story of, of the last decade is that the, the cable companies, uh, you know, they're not in trouble at all as a result of some people. And, and really this notion of cord cutting isn't as widespread as many assume. Um, all of those cable companies are now the Internet service providers. And that is a margin that is a business that actually has even better margins than they had as strictly video providers. This is where we live. Again, today we're talking about the rise of streaming services and uh, whether that has made a, a real impact on traditional TV as we know it. Amanda Lotz joining us via Skype. Uh, she's the author of We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. Uh, we want to hear from you, too. Uh, what are the services that you've come to rely on and, and what are your concerns uh, moving into the future as more and more companies uh, come online? We just talked about uh, how cable is bundled with Internet and what that means uh, for for the consumer. Uh, join us at 860-275-7266. Uh, Joe's calling from Berlin. Joe, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, Joe, go ahead. Hi. Um, <clears throat> so I have a couple of things uh, that I think are really important when we're talking about net neutrality, and especially in the context of streaming video. Uh, you know, when this administration's FCC rolled back the net neutrality restrictions, it was portrayed as kind of getting out of the burden of regulation and, and creating competition. Uh, but I, I really think it's important when we're talking about video streaming. First off, this is 2019. Um, the, the bandwidth is there. We, we can get the infrastructure to have video streaming in low cost. Uh, you know, Hulu, we talk about a lot. Hulu is owned by NBC, Disney, AT&T through Warner Media. Um, what's the other one? 21st Century Fox. It's all owned by traditional media. And, you know, I think there's this illusion, this smokescreen that there is competition, but really there's three players in the game. And I, you know, I think I, I'm excited about all the new media that Hulu has, that Netflix has. Uh, but I, I think it's kind of a dog and pony show where it, 
the end goal is to keep us paying $100 for subpar internet and $30 for our streaming services. Uh, you know, I, the infrastructure is there. I was reading an article yesterday. Uh, the infrastructure spending by big telecom and cable companies is down since the rollback of net neutrality. So there has not been innovation. There has not been, you know, spending on, on improving the infrastructure. Uh, well, Joe, and, Joe, let me ask our guests to respond to some of the points that you've raised about uh, all these companies and uh, depending on uh, who they're partnering with. And does that really uh, mean competition for uh, and you know good uh, service and content for the consumer? Amanda, can you weigh in before we let's talk a little bit more about um, just a lot of these partnerships before we talk about uh, net neutrality? Sure. Now, I think Joe raises a really crucial question in, in asking where is the competition. And, and and there we sort of have to tease apart the different businesses that are at play. Where there really isn't competition is in providing internet service and high-speed internet service at that. And that really is the, the crucial part for consumers in this new environment of of needing competition at that level in order to appreciate, take advantage of these new services, and and that also is where most of the cost is. And so, when we had Ashley on earlier, and we were talking about the the price of of Netflix, well, that assumes that you're already paying a monthly fee for internet, or you're watching Netflix over, let's say, a, a cellular data plan. Um, so the big cost there in accessing programming that's distributed over the internet is in the internet cost and the fact that we really have very poor or no competition when it comes to those internet service providers. Uh, under the Obama administration, the net neutrality rules uh, you know, gave uh, uh, companies uh, kind of the standard of what they had to uh, play by, so to speak. Uh, but now that that's been rolled back, can we talk about the implications? We can talk about them. I think they're not all that clear yet. Um, and so I think the fact that there are both there's the threat of legislative action and there are a number of judicial challenges that are coming from the states um, that are trying to reinstate those rules mean that the last year you know, doesn't tell us everything about what life without and that neutrality might be. I think a lot of those internet service providers, uh, many of which are functionally monopoly internet service providers, are sitting back a bit and waiting to, to see what happens uh, with those judicial and, and the potential for legislative action before um, really changing a lot of their policies. Um, but I think you know, the the report that Joe notes about, you know, sort of this idea that if we got rid of net neutrality, that all of a sudden the internet service providers were going to put so much money into wiring places that don't already have high-speed internet and that they were going to do all these things that were going to be beneficial for the consumers. Uh, we really haven't seen that happen at all. Uh, when we talk about uh, uh, that this is unclear, when we think about the hypotheticals, it's been discussed that um, if people aren't willing to pay for uh, you know, a higher price, that they might not have as much uh, high-speed internet as we've all come to be uh, used to uh, today. Um, is that really the primary, primary concern, these different price points and um, how companies could limit what types of, of content we're even accessing? I think we're entering a new stage of, of media competition that we just haven't had before. And so, you know, a lot of it is pretty speculative. But this environment in which a company such as AT&T um, 
can also control content. So if you want to think about that, there are different businesses going on here. There, there's the business of actually providing the service into your house. Um, and that's, let's say, what a company like AT&T does. And for the most part in the, in the U.S., we've had different companies providing the service, then have actually made the shows um, and then distributed the shows. And so an environment, let's say, in which AT&T owns HBO and can control how much you pay for HBO based on whether or not you are an AT&T subscriber. Um, this is really a new set of competitive strategies that are coming into the marketplace. And I, I think it's just not clear exactly how far many of these companies will go in terms of using their ownership of content to also drive subscriber behavior um, because again, you know, where a ton of this money actually is, is in those monthly fees for internet service, um, much less so than you know, what's out there in terms of a, a, you know, a monthly Netflix subscription. You can join our conversation today on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Don's calling from Bloomfield. Don, go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm retired, and I'm not going to play the poor card, but uh, the idea that there are going to be more and more services going after my subscriber money is sort of annoying. Um, <clears throat> you know, we have Netflix. I don't expect to get more. There are already a number of services we don't subscribe to because we see ads for some of their shows, but we're just not going to spend more. And uh, I sort of feel like I'm in a school of little fish surrounded by sharks, and more sharks are showing up all the time. So, And, and I used to work in cable. So, <laughs> well, well, Don, uh, thank you for, uh, for that description. Uh, Amanda, did you want to respond to Don about uh, how he feels about uh, being the small consumer and, and, uh, <laughs> uh, with all these companies coming, coming online? Well, I think Don's point is well taken, and frankly, I think it's the position of, of most Americans, right? Um, just because there are all these new services coming to market means very little. Uh, we'll wait and see how quickly they are adopted. And I think the expectation that you know, sort of like you will have in the way that when you use, when you have cable, you subscribe to cable, and it's pretty much the expectation is, you know, you're going to have cable as long as you live in that house, perhaps. Uh, that's really just not the way that these streaming services work. They're much easier to pick up and have for a few months and cancel. Um, and I think the other piece of it that that is valuable to a, a consumer such as Don is is the choice that's available now. And so. If you like NBC shows, let's say, you could have, uh, depending on where you live, you may be able to receive them over the air through the actual broadcast signal. Uh, you might access them through a cable subscription, and that might be the most affordable way to get the range of programming that you desire. Uh, or now you could also subscribe to Hulu and receive many of the, the programs that NBC offers in, in that way. And so I think what is potentially exciting or, or valuable about the current moment really is that it's not the case anymore that you know, 115 million U.S. households are really being pushed to all watch television in the same way. And what the companies are doing when, when Disney's launching portals and, and Warner is doing the same thing, what they're trying to do is make sure that their programming is available to people no matter how they want to access. Now, they they are they want to reach you if you're a cable subscriber, um, and they don't want to lose you if you don't want to be a cable subscriber. And so I think the 
conversation is often about who's going to win and who's going to lose as though it's it's all or nothing. But I actually think that we're heading into an environment where there are a lot of different norms and that it isn't the case that um, you know only Netflix can win or that only internet distributed television can win, uh, but actually that we have a, a marketplace of video distribution where there is more choice than there has been. I think the, the key question will continue to be at what cost and, and really remembering the, um, the cost that comes with internet service provision in general. Do you feel like consumers today are a pretty savvy, uh, again, uh, picking and choosing so there's all these different uh, companies that they can uh, subscribe to, but if the price is going up or they're, or they're not happy with the content or maybe waiting uh, for some type of promotion, um, that consumers are uh, really, uh, they, they aren't um, to be led uh, astray by these companies, uh, that they've been able to make the choices that, that work for them. I think it does require a lot more of consumers in terms of understanding what's out there. Um, and it may require them to think a lot more about you know, what is really valuable to them, what is the most important part of their television or video experience, and, and to make those decisions accordingly. Um, but it is difficult, I think, to stay abreast of all of the, the changes and to really have a sense of what service is going to uh, be valuable to you in what way. Uh, Before we let you go, Amanda, uh, is it a generational thing? Do you feel like older Americans are more prone to stick with cable and it's the the millennial generation, so to speak, that are willing to try these different uh, streaming services as as they come on board? Oh, you just left me and my generation X out. (laughs) We're always uh, not part of that conversation. Um, I think it's acculturation and change. Um, It may seem to be showing up primarily in the younger demographics, um, but the data at this point is showing decreased watching of television with all groups under the age of 65. Um, And so I think part of it has to do with um, willingness to, to try new products. Um, but I think the other thing that we're, we're seeing is, is that you know, 10 years ago, there was this presumption that, um, you know, quote unquote, digital natives were going to do everything differently. Um, and you also have the issue of life stage and, you know, sort of when does a cable package start to become really valuable? Well, it starts to become valuable when you have multiple bodies in your household that don't all want to watch the same thing. Uh, so I think the fact that actually cable numbers have not you know, fallen off the cliff, as, as many expected, suggests that cable, traditional cable might be a product, especially in an environment um, that is priced the way it is and where internet service is really priced without a lot of competition, that that continues to be valuable for certain kinds of households. Um, and so I think, again, we're, we're only going to continue to have new generations of consumers that are aware that there are a wide array of options and a wide array of ways of accessing the video that is desired. Amanda Lotz, Professor of Digital Media and Communication at Queensland University of Technology in Australia. She joined us via Skype today, also author of the book, We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. 
Oh, it was my pleasure. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are so many shows we could be watching with more competition from streaming services. How are they setting their programs apart? NPR's TV critic Eric Deggins joins us after the break with his take and recommendations of shows you got to see. Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're pleased to have Eric Deggins joining us by phone. He's TV critic for NPR. Eric, welcome to where we live. Hey, how you doing? So we were talking about uh, all the competition, uh, so to speak, out there with these uh, new companies coming online, more streaming uh, content uh, for consumers. But when you think about uh, the work that you're doing, reviewing and checking out a lot of the content out there, who's coming up with the most innovative stuff? Wow, <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, I think the the the, uh, the question before us is is uh, yet to be answered because there's all these streaming services that we haven't seen yet. So you know, Apple has one uh, that's uh, supposedly coming. There's Disney Plus that we know is coming in the third quarter this year, I do believe. Warner Media, Warner Brothers is developing one, and Comcast uh, just announced that they're doing one uh, connected to NBC. Uh, now, with Disney, we know that they're going to develop original content around the Star Wars franchise. Apple has been making a lot of high-profile deals with big-name talent like Reese Witherspoon. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what they come up with. Um, with what we have now, what we see, uh, the strategy seems to be something that uh, Netflix kind of pioneered, and in fact, HBO pioneered before that, this idea that you um, spend a lot of money and you come up with a high-quality, um, successful TV show that epitomizes what your brand is as a streaming service. So Hulu managed that with The Handmaid's Tale. Um, Netflix did that with both House of Cards and Orange is the New Black dropping in the same year within months of each other. Um, um, we, we've seen this uh, on Amazon with shows like Transparent and then later Homecoming. Um, so, so the question before us now is what signature big-ticket drama or, or, or uh, innovative TV show is Apple going to come up with is Disney going to is Disney Plus going to come up with? Is Warner Media going to come up with? And will it be enough uh, to encourage consumers to spend that extra seven, eight, ten, twelve, fifteen dollars to add that streaming service to a suite of streaming services they probably already pay for? So, in your view, when we think about high quality content, is it uh, coming from streaming services versus traditional TV? Well, um, it seems that the high-quality space is moving to streaming and to premium cable channels like HBO and Showtime and Stars. They seem to be paying the money uh, to get movie stars to come on to do their projects, uh, these projects that feel more like uh, long-form movies split into eight or ten episodes, or 13 episodes, uh, rather than um, you know more conventional 
TV series. I, I think we saw this division really starkly this fall. You know, uh, all the networks kick off their new programming in the fall, and it was all very conventional kind of stuff. Um, not even as innovative as recent shows like This Is Us or Blackish or, you know, shows that pioneered in diversity or pi- pioneered in storytelling style. They were, you know, when the, when the biggest news is that Tim Allen is moving a sitcom from ABC to Fox, you know, you got a problem. And, uh, but, but in the streaming space, you know, we've seen, um, you know, uh, Julia Roberts do her first uh, starring role in a TV show that's garnered lots of attention and awards in Homecoming. You know, Handmaid's Tale, of course, has has uh, blazed a lot of trails. Um, we've seen uh, shows like Insecure and and uh, on HBO kind of blaze a trail in terms of diversity. Um, and now we hear that uh, Issa Rae, the the star of Insecure, is going to um, uh, you know develop a sketch show featuring African American women, and that's going to be on HBO, I do believe. So, you know, those those premium spaces. And, uh, and streaming services in a few sort of high-end um, uh, standard cable channels like FX and AMC seem to be developing the lion's share of shows that are considered high quality. Um, and then uh, network TV seems to have ex- accepted its, uh, its lot as sort of the, um, the, the great middle. You know, it, it's offering shows that are decent enough, uh, but they're often formulaic, and they're they're uh, they're aimed at getting the biggest audience possible, as opposed to appealing to a specific audience with high quality. The way some of these uh, uh, shows like True Detective or Insecure uh, seem to do. Eric Deggins is with us by phone, TV critic for NPR. So when we look at what we're used to seeing on Netflix or Amazon, Hulu, can you talk a little bit about how uh, there's blending happening? Uh, maybe the quality between movies and TV, and the fact that sometimes we can just watch it all at once if we want to. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, we're seeing the movie industry blend with the streaming industry which we've decided to call television most of the time, except for when it's special projects like Roma, you know. So it's hard to know exactly what you're talking about in an odd way. Uh, Amazon Studios produces movies. You know, they did Manchester by the Sea. Um, but they also produce a lot of television. Uh, Netflix produces um, projects that are considered movies, like Roma, that's you know contending for an Oscar. But um, it's available to watch on Netflix, which you watch on your television. And then we also have these projects uh, like HBO's True Detective, where um, you know you get a star who from uh, you know one of the hottest movies out there, Green Book, uh, to star in you know uh, an eight or ten episode series um, that's that's limited. It's it's like a a larger story. It's like a larger movie told over multiple episodes. But it's just one season. He's just going to do that and. And then when they do another season of True Detective, there'll be a different star uh, in a different story. It's an anthology. So um, we have all these different forms operating in this space that have sort of blended together the world of film and and television. And and I think uh, it's it's also because consumers are blending those worlds. You know, we're we're entering a world where people's home theater systems are pretty advanced. Um, It's a pretty pleasurable experience to watch. Uh, a film on a on a TV in your home if you've got a nice sound system and a big enough screen, and you know frankly the theater going experience can be expensive, um, it can be annoying. You know other people don't uh, sometimes don't know how to conduct themselves in movie theaters, so 
so the, so there's a lot of reasons I think why we're seeing um, you know these 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 two industries meld. We've also reached a point. Uh, where the the traditional Hollywood movie industry doesn't have room for the kind of mid-level films that it used to offer. And so those mid-level films are now becoming TV shows. So something like True Detective, I think, uh, 10 or 15 years ago would have been a movie. Um, you know, but but um, the, the the Hollywood studios are not invested in making those kind of films anymore. So streaming has stepped up, and they go to talented people and they say, "Look, you know, we're not we're gonna we're not gonna force you to tell the story in two hours. We're gonna give you mm-hmm. you know eight or ten episodes to tell it, uh, and and we'll give you the production so it looks really nice, and uh, and 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 you'll have a star like Mahershala Ali." Uh, and and, uh, and and you'll get the resources you need to really tell the story the way you want to. And sometimes that results in, in really wonderful products. Eric, we just have a couple of minutes left. I have to ask you, as a TV critic, how, do you, how has your job changed trying to keep uh, abreast of all of these new shows coming out and the fact that um, they can all be dumped in one night? Yeah, well, it is, you know... It, you know, poor me. I get paid to watch television, but <laughs> but uh, what ultimately happens is that you have to watch more television. Like um, as I said, because these are uh, you know movie level plots that are stretched out over uh, a wide number of episodes, I have to watch a lot more episodes of a show before I know whether or not it's any good. Uh, and there's also a lot more material out there. Now, uh, what it also means, though, my ultimate job is trying to tell stories about television that tell us something about ourselves. And so it's a target-rich environment. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there, and there's a lot of revealing stuff out there. So, you know, I can I can do a story about Marie Kondo's, uh, you know, new new show on Netflix about getting rid about decluttering, and what does that say about us? And then I can turn around, and, and I can do a, a story about, uh, you know, this great new drama, Black Earth Rising, about the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda. And then I can turn around and I can talk about. Um, you know, a great new talk show uh, or series of talk shows on a, on a bunch of different channels that are trying to reinvent the form. So um, there's a lot of great stories to be told out there. And as your previous uh, guest noted, people need help sorting through all this stuff. So the, the best thing I can do is watch all this stuff for people who don't have time to sample it all and just direct them towards the stuff that's most worth their time. And I think more and more often that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm sort of helping people curate their media experience. We'll tweet out a link uh, to your review of Black Earth Rising, which you just mentioned. We've got under a minute to go. Can you give us a couple more uh, names of shows that we should check out, Eric? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I, I mentioned True Detective. Uh, I'm a big fan of Mahershala Ali, and I think they've done uh, a great job sort of reinventing that show after a disastrous second season into something that's really interesting for the third season. There's this really interesting show that's going to come in March called Shrill um, that's on AMC. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, uh, it's about an, an overweight woman who uh, sort of discovers herself and decides to stop accepting the way uh, that the world has marginalized her. It's a really great sort of dramedy that's coming on AMC that I think people would uh, like to see. Um, the best thing about you know, today's times is that there's so much good content out there that um, you don't have to spend a lot of money to have access to a lot of cool stuff. Um, and you know, we'll, I, I love uh, I love the new Star Trek series on CBS All Access. You know, that, that's it's movie level magic uh, on a TV. And Eric, so, we're going to have to leave it there. I wish we had more time, but sure. we'll tweet out again with some links to your, your latest reviews. Eric Deggins, uh, NPR TV critic. Thanks so much. 
Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>